Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Oil and Gas Council. Today we're joined by Will Cullen, Vice President of Long Point Minerals, who since inception in 2016 have acquired over 130,000 net royalty acres, making them one of the largest end buyers in the space. During our discussion, Will talks about how Long Point has raised nearly $1.7 billion across their first two funds, all direct from LPs such as pensions, family offices, endowments, and insurance companies. Will also talks about why most LPs are still struggling to make direct investments into the mineral space, the importance and value creation that comes from actively managing a minerals portfolio on behalf of investors, and why development timing is one of the most crucial factors of, for success when building a minerals and royalties portfolio. I hope you enjoy. Okay. Will, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Thanks, Tim, for having me. This is great. So um, I, we always like to start out with a little bit of personal background, put a personality uh, behind the company. Can you tell everyone about you know, where you grew up and where you went to college? I know you have a bit of an unconventional background in, in regards to your degree and then how you backed into finance and oil and gas, right? No, that's right. Um, yeah, probably not the typical path that you would hear about from most folks in our industry. Uh, I went to school at Montana State in Bozeman, uh, which actually has a great engineering program, but I ended up uh, not going into engineering and actually graduated from Montana State with a fine art degree. And um, I kind of thought that I was going to go into the world of advertising. Uh, I even had a job right out of school uh, working for a software company doing a lot of their brand design, um, advertisement design, package design, those types of things. And they ended up selling. And when they sold, I was looking around for something to do and was going to go to business school and did go to business school at the University of Denver. My original plan was to get a master's degree in marketing and then get on with maybe like an advertising agency. Um, while I was going to school at the University of Denver, um, you know, they make you take four classes. And one of the core classes that I took was finance. And I just fell in love with it immediately dropped all of my marketing classes and switched everything over to finance and ended up getting uh, two master's degrees uh, in finance. And while I was going to school, that was really where I sort of got into the oil and gas industry. Um, I was working for a oil and gas uh, company in Denver, um, a very small company uh, called Helm Energy. Uh, they only think had about eight people at the time uh, in the company, but it was a great learning ground. Um, and what year is this just for kind of reference on the this, timeline of your career? Yeah, sure. This would have been, um, 2002 to 2004. So I graduated in 2004, uh, from the university of Denver and, and that whole time I was at helm. Um, and yeah, and started in the land department, really didn't know what I was doing. Um, it was really funny. The, the, uh, the CEO, the president at the time, uh, told me I was going to be an asset protection. And uh, so when I showed up the first day, I thought, you know, am I going to get a gun? Uh, do I get to go uh, <laughs> patrol? You know, am I, is this going to be a night shift? Am I, am I going to be patrolling somebody's building? I, I didn't really know what it meant. Um, but when I showed up, uh, they promptly walked me back uh, immediately to the file room. And uh, that's where I learned that asset protection meant uh, just reading through contracts and making sure that they were getting paid what they were supposed to be getting paid on 
on all of their uh, non-op, their minerals, their overrides, their royalties and everything. And, and that's really how I got into the oil and gas business. Um, so that was your, you know, oil and gas 101 education, right? And then it was. went into Petrie Parkman in 2004 then? That's right. Yep. So um, it was really great. Uh, Petrie offered me a job before I even uh, graduated from uh, the University of Denver. And uh, yeah, I came on with them in 04 and was with Petrie until uh, they sold in uh, late 2006. I think it actually was December 2006. Uh, when the they Bamel, right? Yeah, that's right. They went to Merrill Lynch. Um, and at yeah, the time- back in, uh, back in 2015, I got to know Tom really well. We gave him our Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's funny just kind of, you know, taking a step back on a, on a side note, Andy Rapp, one of the partners who I'm sure you, you know well, uh, he's a Rice golf alum, as am I, down in, in Houston. So oh, okay. back when I was, you know, a shithead in college, we always, you know, <laughs> playing on the team, we, we had an alumni event every year. And I played with Andy when I was a, a sophomore, I think, uh, at that alumni event and just kind of got to know him and Tim Carlson. I don't know if Tim predated when you were there, but the Rice golf team, so many alums went through uh, Petrie Parkman. Uh, and then if you kind of look at where they've ended up or, or running different banks or firms or oil and gas companies that, um, throughout the industry, which is kind of funny. But yeah, no, I, I saw that you worked there. And, 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 you know, another parlay too. So you had a looking to get a fine arts degree. From what I remember, Tom is a big collector of, of Western art. And I'm sure that could have that must have been cool working there it's all over his office if i remember correctly right no that's right um yeah tom is a is a huge uh art fan um i, I would say even maybe borderline uh fanatic um which is great uh, he loves the arts really supports the arts um yeah so actually one of my side jobs while i was there uh, at petrie was working with tom on on some of his art stuff and uh, that was a bit of a little uh, side gig that um, that I would do while I was there at Petrie, which was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, and then you know Tom spent some time at at uh, at Bamel, and then um, you know that went to Bank of America, and then uh, you know in the last few years uh, they've got kind of the band back together, so to speak. And and there's a very strong uh, Petrie uh, history. I do know Andy well; uh, he's a great guy, and, and keep up with most of the guys uh, from Petrie Park, and they've all, uh, for the most part, landed in some really great places. No, absolutely. So, so anyways, kind of continuing the story. So you left after they sold to Bamel. And what I found really interesting, which I didn't know, you actually got into the mineral space. I, Highland Minerals and Royalties, can you, a little background on that and, and why you got into that and what kind of, you know, at the time, I, I guess it's Royalty Clearinghouse and Scott Noble, um, who, I don't know if Carl Brunsicki started doing stuff or... Uh, I mean, there there weren't really many, um, and so I would love to kind of hear how that kind of came on your your plate, right? Yeah. So um, when Petrie sold, um, you know, Merrill Lynch wanted to move a bunch of us out to New York. Um, I decided not to go that route. I wanted to stay in Denver, and um, and so then I was looking for something to do. Uh, there was another uh, Petrie alumni that was going to work for uh, MAP, which is uh, Mineral Acquisition Partners. And it was really MAP, uh, like you said, it was uh, Scott Noble, a couple other companies, but, but definitely not the space that it is today with as many players and sophistication. 
Um, and it was a, it was a totally different game. And so, um, you know, my friend from Petrie was going to go work for map. Um, I went out on my own and then would kind of bring him deals. He was one of the folks that would buy things that I was able to put together. And really I was leveraging off of the back land background that I'd gotten at Helm energy and, um, uh, you know, just try to strike it out on my own and see if I could do that. And, you know, did that for a couple of years, I think, you know, just starting out on your own, um, and especially at a time where in the mineral space was really just kind of taking off, um, it was lumpy. You know, I would have great months and I might not have anything for a couple of months. And, and that, was, that was hard, had a young family, and so um, needed to look for something else to do. And that's when I had the opportunity to go work for Shell. Yeah, and, and, and just let's briefly kind of walk through the years at Shell. So you were there for, for eight or nine years, right? And you were in the M&A group. You were in the finance group. You were an MLP business analyst. I think it's interesting, um, you know, all those kind of touch on minerals and royalties a bit. Uh, they probably contributed to your skill set. And did you get, you know, as it is when you work for a Shell or an Exxon, you kind of go into different business units and you, you really can round out your skill set for later on in your career if you want to start your own company or or work in a smaller company and you can wear multiple hats, right? So can you kind of speak to that and then, and then how it transitioned you into backing into the mineral space with Longpoint? Uh, certainly. So um, when I first started out at Shell, I was in their Denver office and uh, I got hired on as a, as a development economist, uh, which is really just somebody who's looking at, uh, you know, the economics of all of their projects. So the wells that they want to drill, if they want to do any infrastructure projects, put together investment plans, uh, investment proposals for them to be able to fund, continue to fund the asset, and then um, you know, kind of help integrate the asset into the broader uh, shell portfolio. So a uh, really exciting job, I loved it. Uh, I got to touch so many different parts of an operated asset. Um, and it's where really sort of I took my next learning in um, the business and really understanding oil and gas and, and what it takes uh, for us to produce hydrocarbons. Um, while I was there, I was looking around within Shell on what I wanted to do next because Shell doesn't like you to do any one job for very long. And so every job you take has a time limit on it. You know that and you know that this thing is coming. You're going to have to switch positions. And I had an opportunity to move to Houston and get into the M&A group, which uh, I jumped on right away. Um, I think that's one of the best uh, jobs within Shell. Um, it is a, a global position and you move across um, asset classes, meaning that you're not doing just upstream. When you're in the M&A group, you got to touch on upstream, midstream, downstream, alternative energies. Uh, and the region that I got to work was North and South America. So got to do some international projects, uh, really incredible experience. You get to see things that you just don't get to see uh, typically in, in, you know, most of the oil and gas world, just mega projects, mega deals, um, really incredible uh, opportunity. And that's, and that's really where uh, I learned about M&A. And then um, I had a friend, uh, Brad Marvin, who was working here at um, Four Point Energy uh, under George Solich. And Brad and I had actually worked together at Petrie Parkman. So that, that Petrie uh, Parkman okay. story continues. There you um, go. And when uh, when George Solich was thinking about uh, doing getting into the mineral space, um, Brad suggested that 
George reach out to me. No, Brad knew that I had done the minerals thing for a couple of years prior to joining uh, Petrie Parkman and the, you know, the experience that I had in the M&A group and Shell really sort of paired well for what George was looking for. And really the first few conversations that I had with George uh, were less about, you know, uh, an interview or, or even really, um, you know, what, what I was looking for was more about, you know, helping him understand uh, what it would take to be successful in the minerals business. He had a pretty good idea. They had actually picked up some minerals in, I believe, Cordillera 3 through their leasing program. Just, just um, as they were out there leasing, they had folks saying, hey, you know, will you buy my minerals? And so that's really sort of what, where this idea for Long Point came from. Um, but really, those, those early conversations were a lot of tactical questions around uh, how to get you know, sellers to sell, what we thought volume would be, what the hit rate would be, uh, how you'd need to staff that out, what that would look like. And, and he, he had a vision already, but it was really kind of sort of branding that out and testing some of those ideas. And, and for those who are not familiar, you know, you have Four Point Energy, um, who's the sister company of Long Point Minerals, EMP focused, uh, and then you guys share offices, share technical support and resources. And then you have Long Point, who does a lot of the minerals acquisition. That kind of partnership structure or sister entity structure is something that's become a little more common um, in today's mineral space. Um, where, where did that idea kind of come from? Um, I, I know you guys weren't the first, but, you know, Viper, Diamondback, they've been a pioneer in a lot of different structures and, and trends in the industry. Was it, was it that that kind of got George thinking? Was it, was it really just, you know, the, the conversations with the mineral owners in that leasing program with Cordillera? Um, just kind of curious how it all came to fruition. Yeah, so um, that's pretty interesting. I think it had less to do with trying to model uh, an existing structure, and it had more to do with really trying to bring the entire EMP skill set to the mineral space and bringing that technical prowess, the technical know-how and understanding, uh, bringing to bear the larger organization of accounting and land administration to really apply those things uh, to the mineral space to, to be successful. And I, I think that they really were striving to run in the mineral business more like an EMP business and less like, I think, a lot of examples that they had seen out in the field. In many cases, I think, certainly, like you said, there's some other players out there, but in a lot of instances, uh, we've been able to have an advantage for a while now. And now here's where you're unique, and this is what I, I'd love for you to talk about, you know, Long Point 1 and 2 in the fundraising side. Your major LP and, and the primary investor is Canadian Pension Plan. Um, that's where you guys are unique, right? If, if you're going to look at others who have the EMP royalties arm, others are doing it with traditional private equity. You guys have a very cheap cost of capital, um, and you're an end buyer. You're not looking to exit this in the future. And so that, that gives you... A, a big advantage um, on top of the technical expertise and leveraging the EMP platform, if you may. Um, can, can you go into that? I, I'd really love to hear that, you know, did, I'm assuming George and your team approach Canadian pension. Uh, it's something that this is one of the main reasons we're doing this podcast because there's a need to get more pensions and more endowments and sovereign wealth funds and foundations and, and, and investors that have this, patient long-term capital to become end buyers and they can buy up and down the value chain 
they don't necessarily have to put billions of dollars to work like you guys have, but it, it just makes sense. Can you, uh, I'd love to hear the evolution of when you were doing the dance with them on, did they get it right away? I know they're very sophisticated oil and gas investors. We know Avic Day's team very well. I know you guys are dealing with a different entity within Canadian Pension for Long Point, but um, just some insights on, you know, how, the, how a pension fund views this space. One of the things that George recognized very early on was that minerals is a long-lived asset and a long-term asset. It's a yield-based asset, really fits an investor who's looking for yield and cash flow and doesn't necessarily fit a lot of the private equity models. Um, I think with uh, this public space in particular still expanding, there aren't a ton of exit options, at least for larger mineral packages. And so uh, a group like Canadian Pension Pan, a, a traditional LP investor, is uh, very well suited for the mineral space and making mineral investments. Um, when the guys first got started, they were using Jeffries to make that introduction. I think Jeffries was very instrumental in getting, the, getting us our foot in the door. And then obviously, uh, George is, is really good at helping investors understand exactly what the proposition is. And I think through that process, uh, they were able to really explain to Canadian Pension Plan and help them understand uh, just the opportunities before them in the mineral space. I think one of the challenges, and, it's, and it certainly has started to change a little bit from an LP perspective, is what we've seen and what we heard when we were out on the road a lot of times was that LP investors sometimes have a hard time making direct investments. And they're much more comfortable making investments with asset managers who are then making the investments for them through, across a portfolio. And, and a lot of these LPs aren't even really set up or structured in a way to make direct investments. Now, we've seen a little bit of that change. And obviously, you've seen more and more folks starting to come to the table for direct investments into you know, yields, cash flowing based assets uh, like minerals. But there's still a lot of room to go there. I think that. Um, you know, there's still quite a few folks that are more comfortable just making investments with asset managers than they are with um, direct investments into companies. Now, the partnership has worked out phenomenally well. Uh, Canadian Pension Plan is our anchor investor, as you noted, in Long Point One. And then when we went out and raised Long Point Two, they were anchor investor again. Uh, they've been an incredible partner. Um, and we've worked really well together. And uh, it's, it's worked out really well. It has been a, a good. Um, cost of capital for us. It's allowed us to capture a lot of deals. But I think beyond that, just the partnership in general works extremely well. Um, we haven't had instances really of us being misaligned in terms of vision or where we want to take the company. Uh, so far, everything's worked out really well. No, that, that's uh, fantastic. Just for color, if, if, you can, if you're comfortable sharing, just a a size on, on your funds, just so people have perspective. I mean, we're, we're interviewing CEOs of, of all size companies on this podcast. Um, some are managing five to $10 million funds. Some are 30 to 50, some are a couple hundred million. I mean, you guys are at the top of the, the pyramid, right? So just a little bit of color on the size. And then, you know, I'd love for you to, to, to kind of go a little bit further on, you know, LPs investing directly. Uh, and you said, some of them aren't structured to be able to do that. And you said that's changing. Can you go into some of the, the change? Are they setting up, you know, 
side entities to be able to do this and have a little more flexibility. You know, the, the argument for royalties companies is why would you pay management fees in a fund when you can own these directly? And one of the biggest misconceptions out there is that this is going to be a really complex, difficult asset to manage. It's, it, there's a lot of complexity and expertise uh, on the industry and the technical side needed to acquire and assemble a portfolio. But if, if a team like yours does that, a lot of the hard work is done and then it can be managed directly. It's, it's just a financial management play, right? Managing cash flows and making sure the accounting straight, um, you know, sorted out. And that can be outsourced or, you know, it can be done by, by a team like yourselves. I mean, the other thing, when you say direct, I, I think a lot of minerals companies out there, especially lower down the food chain, they talk about turnkey packages and selling direct to where, you know, a pension or endowment would hold it directly under their own AUM. Do you think that's possible or there needs to be, you know, because right now Teachers Capital, another big Canadian pension who's investing heavily in the space, has heritage. Canadian pension has long point. Do you think it's just more realistic for them to directly invest in a company versus own the assets outright on their balance sheet? Yeah, no. Um, a couple of questions there. Let me start with your, your first one. So in terms of size, uh, we raised over $800 million for Long Point One. We deployed that in about 18 months and then went out and raised Long Point Two, which was, again, over $800 million. So we've we raised uh, almost 1.7 billion total between the two entities, and uh, we've put a, a good portion of that to work. Um, Long point one is now just in distribution mode, so it's no longer making acquisitions. It's just returning cash back to shareholders. We're still deploying capital in Long point two, and as soon as we're finished with that, it will then also go into distribution mode, and uh, we'll go out and raise Long point three. I think, yes, when I say it's changing, I think that, you know. Certainly, there are folks that are not set up to own direct investments for, for a variety of reasons. And, and we've seen it kind of vary from, you know, different pension plans to insurance companies to family offices uh, on their reasons why. Some of it is uh, they don't want to take certain risk or, or perceived risks internally uh, by making direct investments. Um, other ones just can't manage really direct investments. They really can only manage putting money with money managers. And, and there's a variety of other reasons why, um, you know, a direct investment wouldn't work and, and why that landscape um, is changing. I think that the way that folks are getting that solved is, is a couple of different ways. You mentioned sort of side investments and sidecar deals. I think we've seen some of that. Uh, that certainly is one way that these LPs are tackling it. Another way is, is that they're just starting to hire the people that are necessary in order for them to make those direct investments. Um, so, you know, I think it just sort of varies by the different LP entity and really how they're going about trying to um, incorporate direct investments into their portfolio and, and what they're doing to really sort of uh, tackle that and address that. Um, in terms of you know, seeing other folks, you've, you, like you mentioned, we have Canadian Pension Plan with us, uh, teachers with, with Heritage. I think that in terms of the type of direct investment, in other words, you know, owning the assets directly versus still just putting it with a management team or a company in order to manage the assets. I think that a lot of people believe that minerals are a very 
low maintenance asset, if you will, to manage. And that you simply make the acquisition and then you collect the check and it's mailbox money. You certainly could manage your business that way if you wanted, but you would leave an enormous amount of value on the table. Um, it actually takes quite a bit of work from a land administrative perspective and an accounting perspective to make sure you're tracking down the revenue that you should be getting, checking the interest on the assets that you have and that you're being paid when wells come online. I mean, Operators in general are not very incentivized to make sure all of that is correct and to pay you. Uh, operators also have tools at their disposal that allow them to delay paying you when uh, wells come online so they don't have to pay you right away. Typically, there's uh, anywhere from a three to six month delay on that. And, and that can be very cumbersome uh, if you don't know what you're doing, if you're not familiar with the space, you aren't familiar with title, with some of the accounting procedures how the operators work. So you need to have that understanding. You need to have a small to large staff of folks, depending on the assets, uh, to manage all of that. Uh, you're going to be getting division orders. Uh, if minerals go open, you need people that have leasing expertise that go out and lease those expertise. And when wells are being drilled, it's, you want to have a technical staff that can uh, predict where operators are going to be drilling to help you understand when wells are drilled, what the production profiles look like. So there's actually quite a bit more, I think, that goes into it than a lot of folks initially think about. I think initially they just think, oh, I go out and buy this thing and I'm going to collect a check and I can kind of forget about it. And, and there's really a lot more to it than that. Yeah. And so actively managing a portfolio, there's, there's value there. And so uh, I guess kind of summing up those questions I asked uh, having these entities directly invest into a management team is probably where, where the space will go. Right. Um, and then if, like, like you said, having someone on, they don't have to be experts, but they could have someone with, with the industry experience to be able to, you know, be a, a sounding board or a, a checkpoint, right. On, on everything, make sure it looks good. Uh, that, that, that's really helpful. What, so 1.7 billion, that's tremendous. That's a lot of money. And you guys are just one, one of many companies out there. It shows how big the space is and you guys are deploying it at a very quick rate. Um, so there's, there's lots of upside still to go. Can you talk about the other types of fund uh, companies, uh, investors that are in your funds? It's just to paint a little color on, you know, we're going to be distributing this podcast to, to all sorts of investors, um, generalists, people outside the industry, real estate, um, all sorts of different institutional investors to try to get them interested in this space. So if they're listening, um, you know, kind of touch on the different classes of investors so that they might say, oh, you know, the, the yields and everything are appealing to me. If, if others in my other, you know, my investment peers are looking at this, maybe I can, can dive in a little deeper as well, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think most of the folks that we have targeted uh, when we went out and did our fundraising, were sort of your traditional LP investors. So that's uh, endowment funds, uh, pension plans, insurance companies, family offices. Uh, those are really the types of folks we targeted and the folks that we have in our equity stack. You know, we have representation from all of those groups that I just mentioned. You know, when we went out and raised Long point two in particular, we did show it to a lot of more traditional private equity funds, but it was just harder for them to get their arms around the structure and this idea of, you know, holding on to this asset for an extended period of time without 
necessarily having a specific exit in mind. And I think uh, certainly we would look at opportunities, but like you said, we're a long-term holder. Uh, Canadian Pension Plan has been very happy along with our other investors with the distributions we're making out of Long Point One and, and looking forward to the distributions we're going to be making uh, pretty in pretty short order out of Long Point Two. And I think company or investor that this really appeals to is somebody that is searching for yield. Um, this does not fit, I don't think, somebody who's looking for a quick flip or you know a large pop on an asset sale, maybe on a much smaller scale. So certainly there are mineral companies out there that target that market because their business plan is one that they're trying to aggregate packages and then turn those quickly to larger buyers, either like us or other folks. And so maybe in that business model, more traditional private equity or a different type of investor that's looking for more of that quick uh, pop or return um, on a sale fits. But for us, uh, it really comes down to somebody who's looking for yield cash. Gotcha. Um, so, so I got a, a question for you. So you sit down with, with an LP investor and let's just say they've, they've invested into oil and gas in particular upstream over the last 10 years. More, more than likely, they, they've had a rough go at it, right? Uh, the returns for upstream haven't been as frothy as they may have been in the past. And so you, you've probably come across some people who are a bit jaded on the oil and gas space right now. Now, you know, minerals and royalties are tied to oil and gas commodities, um, but it is a different play. Uh, I've heard clients refer to it is very bond-like. You don't have exposure to cost on any operations or infrastructure. You get free upside exposure to, to technology innovations. There's a number of, of positive spins on investing in the mineral royalties, and you can, you can talk about that. But what happens when an investor says, well, Will, this all sounds great, and I see a lot of capitals flowing into this space. You've deployed a lot. You've raised a lot. But aren't you making money on increased production? And so if, if capital is, you know, it's stringent on and, and it's being very careful on going into EMP development to further drilling and thus increase production, which increases royalty payments, if that capital is going down and I'm investing in minerals, it, you know, don't, don't I need EMP investment to drive minerals growth? And it's a bit of a catch-22 and I think it's something right now where the, the industry is really good at reinventing itself and finding creative financing solutions. But when that comes up, you know, and, and you can kind of put your, your four point hat on here. Well, how do you, how you go about combating that and, and hedging that risk? Uh, is it following, you know, buying minerals only under very, very strong companies with, with balance sheets that are healthy, that have very, you know, predictive, uh, rigs and drilling plans, um, rig schedules and drilling plans, I should say, going forward. Uh, would love to kind of hear your thoughts um, on, on that, because it's definitely something that an investor is going to have to think about because they're, they're tied together, EMP development and, and minerals uh, cash flow, right? Yeah, no, certainly. And I think you're touching on something that I think a lot of folks overlook sometimes when they think about the mineral space and that that you almost see a disconnect in some instances when you look at you know how people are thinking about minerals in certain instances that you know the minerals is certainly tied to EMP and the EMP development is necessary in order for the minerals to to get value 
And one of the biggest drivers on that is going to be development timing. And so um, you need development to happen. You need uh, to receive the cash flows, the wells to be drilled. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you're willing to just take whatever sort of production comes your way or that you're just solely focused um, on volume. I think for us in particular, the timing of when we launched really worked out in our favor. And we, you know, we launched in mid 2016. So, you know, the industry is kind of coming out of, of that downturn in 2015. What that really did is help de-risk for us where to put our money within the U.S. And as we looked across the landscape in 2016, there were only two plays at that time that were really making any money and, and were the only places that operators were investing capital and continuing to drill. And that was the Eastern Anadarko Basin in the scoop stack and merge, and then in the Permian Basin in both the Delaware and the Midland. And so, you know, that, that's what we really saw. We looked across and said, well, those are the only two places where there's rigs. Those are the only two places where operators seem to make money. Let's focus in on that. And so we've always sort of taken limited basin strategy and, and for the most part have been just a two basin strategy focused in on those areas that we knew operators could continue to make money even in a low price environment. So that kind of gives you the where and how we chose where we are. I think the other thing that you touched on is very critical, which is around uh, operators' ability to continue to develop the assets. I think that today is actually becoming more and more prevalent um, in this downturn. We certainly are seeing some operators struggling and trying to continue to make things work, trying to remain profitable, trying to uh, continue to, to drill wells and, and just stay uh, alive and just stay relevant within the industry. So it, it takes an additional layer of research there to really go beyond just, you know, is the operator you're buying under a well-known operator to really uncovering and saying, okay, do I believe that this operator in the future will have the financial capabilities and the balance sheet to continue to develop and uh, produce the asset. Um, it doesn't do you any good to buy under somebody who maybe at the moment has a little bit of cash and is drilling some wells that are uneconomic. That may sound great as a mineral owner because you don't have any CapEx or OpEx and, and you could think to yourself, well, what do you care? Uh, you can just buy under that person and get the minerals. But you know, if that person can only afford a couple of wells and you own a vast position and you need them to drill uh, a lot more than those, than those couple, then certainly you need to look at the viability and the financial capabilities of that operator. And that's one of the things we take into account here. We, that is just like you said, we put on our operator hat. We really dig into things from the financial side to really understand, you know, not only is that operator maybe a great driller, uh, maybe you know, they're, they're drilling wells quickly or they're completing wells better than other people, but do they have that financial capability to continue the development program? Because uh, like I said, that, that development lever, that development timing is one of the most critical when you're looking at valuing uh, these assets. Typically, you can be off a little bit here or there on your, on your type curve. Um, you can be off here a little bit there on some of your other technical assumptions, but one of the biggest drivers is going to be development timing. If, if you miss that in a big way, then uh, you really potentially have a lot of money just sitting in the ground. And what I like to refer to is just dead money. I think with minerals, the risk is a little bit lower because you hold it into perpetuity. So it's not like it goes away. And if development timing gets delayed, 
you know, certainly it just pushes your return out or minimizes your return. I think having gamblers ruin in the mineral space is, is much lower than say in the EMP space, but uh, you still have to be careful. You still need to take a look at what's happening more broadly than just it being good rock. And yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I got a question though. So you guys have the, one of the cheapest forms of capital in the mineral space. Mm-hmm. What about the theory of you are holding this into perpetuity? Um, you know, you can obviously buy stuff cheaper when it's undeveloped. And if you, if the rock is good, you, you can have the, the idea that it will get developed at some point. Is there a bit of mix in that and, and how you're building your portfolio? And then, you know, macro implications, you worked with Tom Petrie. He's one of the most, you know, renowned economists and revered for his global perspective on how the the space is going to develop and the trends that are going to unfold both from a industry and a financial perspective. Right. So I'm sure you have that part of your brain ingrained in you just from working with him. You know, I, I interviewed Darren Zanovich the other day from Mason Minerals Partners. One of the reasons they're very bullish on the Haynesville is because they see that as being one of the main feedstocks for LNG in the Gulf Coast. And that being, you know, LNG being a major driver for the U.S. when you look at energy security and, and the economy and everything going forward. I thought that was really smart. You know, do you look at things from a macro perspective like that? Because if you, if you guys are so long term, but you're only looking, not say only, but if, if there's a heavy focus on that development timing, that's more near term, right? How do you balance the bo- uh, both? Yeah, so that's a great question. So we really think of ourselves as portfolio managers, um, managing this portfolio of mineral and royalty assets. And so in managing that, what we're trying to build is we're trying to build a cash flow and yield profile that has near, medium, and long-term growth. Now, that doesn't mean that we're only making acquisitions that that fills all three of those buckets. We'll certainly make acquisitions that only have one of those buckets sometimes. Um, Maybe we look at a PDP-heavy deal. Uh, Maybe we look at a deal that doesn't have any development on it now, but it's got it out in the future. But we're constantly looking at the portfolio to make sure that we don't have any parts where uh, the projected yield is just sort of falling off a cliff, if you will. And, and dropping. What we want to see is a nice uh, rampy growth profile that continues to provide uh, yield and cash flow growth back to our investors. We're really trying to build a durable, sustainable business uh, that way and that addresses exactly what you're talking about in terms of you know, being short-term, medium, and long-term focused and, and having the cash flow that sort of fills all of that and, and really providing not only something in the near term, but also uh, for the future. And I think that's what gives us flexibility. Uh, if we were constrained in some way, and like a lot of the publics are, I think a lot of the public struggle because they need to do deals that are cash flow accretive, that have a certain profile and so all of a sudden that starts to limit them down into a pretty narrow space in terms of the type of transaction that they can transact on, at least in a large scale. I think maybe on a small scale, uh, they can do what they want and, and, and that's not going to come up. But anything, anything of meaningful size uh, needs to sort of fit a pretty um, prescriptive um, description in terms of what they can bring into their portfolio. And, and, and that limits them. And I think that's also where private equity, private companies continue 
to play because private companies can put things together in any manner of form. So, you know, grab stuff that's long-term only, grab some stuff that's medium-term, get some stuff that's short-term, kind of cobble that together and have it fit the profile that those publics need and, and continue to feed the, feed the machine because the publics really need acquisitions in order to continue to grow. And so that's where I can see uh, a private player continuing to play. But we certainly take a, a, a look at the macro picture as well. You talked about uh, Tom Petrie. Uh, always love to hear what Tom has to say. And, and definitely uh, from that, uh, look at things from a macro perspective. And again, that's what really helps us sort of put together this portfolio that has, you know, both a short and long-term view. We're taking both of those things into account and really trying to build a portfolio that way. I want to pivot a little bit and then we can kind of draw the, the interview to a close. Let, let's just kind of talk your portfolio, where it is today. So you guys are focused on the Anadarko Basin, right? The Scoop, Stack, and Merge, the Midland and Delaware Basins. And you're also looking at the EU for it, correct? Uh, can you talk about kind of the, you know, how many deals have you done, the size of your portfolio in terms of net royalty acres? You know, how many deals are you looking at a year? Um, you know, what are the things you look at in deals that, and, and I guess some of the partnerships you've had. So if, if you've raised 1.7 billion if you, and you built a sizable portfolio and deployed most of that capital you've raised, you're, you're putting the money to work effectively and you're doing it in a sophisticated way. You're not just throwing money at stuff, right? Um, how, how are you doing that? How, how are you getting that money to work? Because you, it sounds like you, from my, our past conversations, you do a lot of stuff organically. Um, you're not doing brokered packages. You're not buying companies, or at least you haven't yet. And, um, you know, to put that amount of money to work, you know, when you think of a kitchen table deal, it could be, you know, as low as, you know, 10 to $50,000, right? Um, so how, how are you leveraging partnerships and, and resources and your team to, to get deals done and build the portfolio? Yeah. So what we've done is we have gone out and partnered with local teams in those areas in order for us to be able to see the kind of deal flow and transact on the types of transactions that we want to do. We felt that local teams had an advantage and knew the community, knew the players well, because the mineral space is a lot about trust and relationship. Um, buying and selling minerals has become more mainstream and it's happening more and more, I think, as we've seen the space grow, but there's a huge trust component. Uh, it's not like buying or selling stocks um, where there's a lot of mechanisms at your disposal and, and people feel really comfortable with the process through you know, a, a variety of avenues. And this really comes down to, like you said, somebody coming in to somebody's home or over the phone and, and sitting down at their kitchen table and, and working a deal. And a lot of times folks have inherited these things. These aren't things that they went out and bought necessarily as an investment. And so there's a strong tie there. And so that's why we felt it was really important to have local teams uh, embedded in those areas where we wanted to go uh, buy minerals. And so we formed uh, several relationships with with different teams in the different areas, uh, outlined areas for them to go out and, and prosecute our business and, and make offers and, and see what we can get done. And we've, we've had a bit of success of that. We've done over a thousand transactions. So we've accumulated almost 130,000 net royalty acres between the two uh, entities and between the, the two basins. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's 
been good, but it's also had a lot of challenges. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like that just because we had a, a great partner, a capital partner, we had this technical know-how that we were able to go out and buy whatever we wanted. Uh, we weren't, uh, our hit rate is uh, sub 10%. In fact, I think right now our hit rate is somewhere around 8%. So that's a lot of deals that we see and evaluate and take a look at that we're just not getting done. And uh, there's a lot of competition out there, but there's also a lot of times that sellers change their mind. I mean, they get to the, the final stage. And like I said, because it's an emotional decision, there's a lot of trust involved. Uh, you do get a lot of owners that at the last minute just say, yeah, you know what, this isn't for me. I'm going to hang on to it a little, a little bit longer. I think also mineral owners don't have the same tool set at their disposal that like we do here, for instance, you, you know, we've talked about the relationship between four point and long point. And so sometimes too, you get mineral owners that just because you're a larger company coming in and making them an offer, they automatically assume that you must know something that they don't know and, and that they should hold on to them because they might be missing something in the future. So there are several hurdles that, you know, we try to get over. We try to educate owners as much as we can. We're very transparent in the offers that we make. Uh, we oftentimes will walk them through why we came up with the value that we did and, and just try to build that uh, relationship uh, with them that we can. But I think what really helps is having those local teams um, because that first impression of having somebody that's embedded in those communities where we're buying is, is critical. And, and then we continue to do things in those communities as well. We try to be good community partners. We really strive for folks to come away with things in a win-win kind of feel and want them to feel like uh, they made a good transaction. We're happy with the minerals and, and we're not going anywhere. You know, again, I think kind of having this long-term view and being out there, uh, we can't just go out and, and scalp people and then, uh, you know, move on to the next person. The, the communities are too small. You can't uh, fleece anybody and assume that you're going to be able to continue to do business because mineral owners talk and uh, they're very in tune with who does good deals, who has good reputations, who does what they say they're going to do, who can show up with the money and, and get things done. And, and it's important to us. And we really work on reputation. We really work on uh, being good community partners. And um, I think that's helped us, uh, certainly. In terms of deal size, you mentioned, you know, deals at the kitchen table and, and things that we've done. So, you know, that thousand plus transactions we've done has really covered the gamut. I often get asked the question, you know, what's your average deal size? And, and there really isn't an average size. We'll do everything down to a single acre and have done things down to a single acre, all the way up to things that are hundreds of millions of dollars. And we think that's really how you have to approach this business. Uh, there's just too much out there that's highly fragmented, that's small, that if you eliminate that part of the market, if you say, well, I'm only going to look at packages over a certain size, I think there's just too much that you leave on the table that you, you don't capture. Plus, a lot of these deals turn into larger deals. Uh, again, that whole concept around relationship and tight-knit communities. Uh, if you do a good deal with somebody, a lot of times you will get uh, their brother, their sister, their cousin, their neighbor, uh, all coming to the table as well. So you know, doing a single transaction that might not look big at first, all of a sudden you get four or five other uh, either family members or relatives or, or neighbors or whatever coming in with them. And all of a sudden now it's turned into something uh, of pretty good size. And so uh, we're just not willing to turn a blind eye due to size. We, we really look at everything. No, that's, that's good to know. And I'm sure a lot of people in the industry who don't have a direct line to you or relationship with you 
um, that that's that's helpful to know, right? For for bringing deals in the future. So, Will, I want to I want to thank you for your time. I really enjoyed it, um, and I think your insights will be greatly uh, helpful and insightful for a lot of investors and and a lot of companies out there in the industry. So I appreciate you sharing. Uh, I'll give you the floor to close out. I always like to give people the opportunity for a message to both their peers in the industry and also the investment community. It could be on behalf of uh, Long Point Minerals. It can kind of be a public service announcement about the space itself. Um, some trends you're seeing, some, some, some misconceptions that you, know, you find yourself saying over and over again to investors that you just want to reiterate. The, the floor is yours just to wrap it up and then we'll, um, we'll, we'll part ways. Yeah, no, thanks, Tim. This has been a lot of fun. Um, you know, I don't know if I have necessarily a, um, a community service message, but I think certainly investors need to take uh, a pretty solid look at the space. I think I hear a lot of times it's a defensive way to play the oil and gas and energy space. I think that's very true. It, it is a defensive way um, to play the space. And certainly, you know, there are no capex risks there are no op opex risks there's no environmental risks so you know mineral owners are not on the hook for environmental liability so those things are all very attractive but i think one of the points that you touched on earlier is something very key that investors need to keep in mind which is the mineral space only works as long as the emp space is working as well and so it's worth doing your homework to understand if you're going to be an investor in minerals uh, where that mineral company or management team is outlined, who they're buying under, and really what that picture looks like. Um, because like I said, it, you know, it, it doesn't have a lot of the risks that you would normally associate with oil and gas around you know, being such a capital intensive business. But you also want to make sure that your money just isn't sitting there in the ground on something that's not going to uh, be developed. So it's, it's worth taking a look at. And um, you know, I think we've we've really tried to address that. And we've really tried to bring our expertise to bear in order to uh, make investments that uh, are under operators and in areas that will continue to get developed. And, uh, you know, if people want to find out more about us, uh, happy to reach out. They can get us through our website, which is just uh, longpointminerals.com and uh, happy to continue the conversation if anyone's interested. Absolutely. Well, thank you, my friend, for the time. It's always a pleasure. And Look forward to seeing you soon, whether it's just when you're passing through Houston or one of our dinners with Scott or, or one of the events later this year. No, that sounds great. Thank you very much, Tim. Thanks, Will. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. If you're interested in meeting Will or any of the other executives in our network, then I encourage you to join us at our upcoming North Am Royalties Assembly in Houston and our private oil and gas investment assembly at the New York Stock Exchange. For more information on these events, please email me at tim.powell, that's P-A-W-U-L, at oilcouncil.com, or visit our website at www.oilcouncil.com. Thanks, and see you next time.